And well, kids, you can go downstairs, everybody else, find a good seat, get your Bibles out, get them ready. Praise the Lord. Last week, if you were with us, we were in the Romans chapter 12. We've been talking for the, since the beginning of the year about the, the importance and the reality of the kingdom of God in our lives. We spent quite a bit of time, and we'll spend more time in the future, talking about the expansion of the kingdom of God. You know, Jesus said that the kingdom of God is like yeast that starts small, but it works its way into the whole lump of, of bread. He says the kingdom of God is like a mustard seed that starts small, but then it grows and it grows. And in his story, that mustard bush, that mustard tree went, made, went a lot bigger than it would in natural. He said the mustard tree he talked about uh, overtook the garden and it, it provided shade for everything else. So the kingdom of God is made, is designed to expand. We're part of that expansion. Do you know the scripture uh, tells us pretty clearly, God didn't send the angels to go and, and, and find the lost and bring them in. It says at the end of the days, the angels will be the ones that separate the wheat from the chaff. But it also says in that same parable that we are the seed that God sowed into the world. We're the seed he sowed into the field. He says, he says, my children, my people are the seed and the field is the word, world, sorry. He sowed us into the world and that kingdom is meant to expand. So we've talked about what that means to go out and see it expand. But we also understand that if it's going to expand on the outsides, if it's going to expand on the fringes, it's got to first expand in us. If we want the kingdom of God to expand in our nation, if we want it to expand in our city, it's got to expand in our own hearts. It's got to get to the point where it starts to take over our lives. If you're not comfortable with God taking over your life, you signed up to the wrong club. You might be in the wrong place. The kingdom of God is, is such, just as we talked about the yeast working into the whole uh, lump of dough and eventually filling everything. That's the same way that it is in our hearts. It starts out small. But if you let God, even in the small places, it won't be long until you see the kingdom of God expanding in your own heart. You, you see it taking over parts of your life. It is, at times, terribly inconvenient. <laughs> you know what I mean? It was not convenient for the disciples to leave their boats and follow Jesus. But boy, did it pay off might not pay off in the way you thought it would pay off. Sure, now they, now they had fish for the rest of their time. Whenever they needed fish, Jesus was the one who knew where it was. But that's not why they followed Jesus. They didn't follow Jesus because they said, hey, he's the guy who knows where the fish are. They followed him for something much better. The interesting thing is, when it, the scripture that tells us that they left their boats, it ha that was immediately after they caught the biggest catch of their life. It's pretty hard to leave the game when you just caught more than you've ever caught in your life. That's not the time you really want to leave the fishing game. But that's what they did. The disciples of John the Baptist left John the Baptist to follow Jesus. Matthew left his tax collecting to follow Jesus. Many of the others had other things in their life. But when Jesus said, follow me, it doesn't matter how much that messes up your life. It's worth it. In fact, there was a couple of guys who said, well, first can I do this and first can I do that? And Jesus says, nobody who starts out and then looks back is fit for my kingdom. 
He says, you, I mean, so basically he's saying, if you want to be part of my crew, if you want to follow me, it's all or nothing. I came to a point as a teenager, many of you have heard me say this, but as a teenager, I, I had gotten good at, uh, at, at keeping God in certain segments of my heart and certain segments of my life. I think you might be able to identify with this. Maybe we won't raise our hands, but you might identify with the thought of letting God into certain areas of your life. Sort of like a waffle. You know, I, I poured the syrup into certain squares of the waffle. God was in certain squares of my life. But I remember hitting a point where I said to, to myself, if God is indeed real, if Jesus is who he says he is, if this is anything, it has to be everything. I mean, if we don't believe in God, why are we wasting our time here? If we do believe in God, who's the center of the universe, who the book of Colossians says that Christ, through him, through Jesus, all things were created. It says everything comes from him, comes through him, and is for him. So everything that was created was created by him, created through him, and created for him. He's the, he's the reason, he's the beginning, he's the end, he's the goal, he's all these things. So if we really believe in him, there's no... There's no part-time believing. There's no halfway with this. It's either all or nothing. And I'm not telling you that God's going to kick you out of the church if you're halfway. I'm just telling you it will be incredibly frustrating. Be incredibly frustrating for you to just sit halfway and not decide whether I'm fully following Jesus or not. Now, I'm not saying any of you are doing this, of course. Uh, I'm not trying to write on anybody's wall here and, and, and say, that, say that, you know, you're only halfway, you're only lukewarm. I'm just trying to encourage you that there is no other life than a life fully following Jesus. So when we talk about the kingdom of God, the kingdom of God is not a drop-in kingdom. You don't walk in and walk out. The kingdom of God is meant to be our reality. Do you know it's, it's the only kingdom that will stand the test. It will, it's the only kingdom that will still be standing when all other kingdoms are shaken. Because the Bible says in Hebrews there will be a time of shaking and everything that can be shaken will be shaken and there'll be a moment where all the kingdoms crumble. It says, but since we have, since we serve and are part of an unshakable kingdom, Let's worship God with fear and reverence. So we're part of a kingdom that won't be shaken. We're, the kingdom of God is the only kingdom that will be standing at the end of time. Scripture says that the things that we can see are temporary. The things we can't see are eternal. Now that messes with us because our sense of reality is if I can see it, it's more real than anything else. You know what I mean? We might believe in the spiritual realm. We might understand that there's things we don't see. But the things we trust the most are the things we can see. You proved it today. You walked in. You saw where the chair was. When it came time to sit down, I didn't see a lot of you praying over your seat, hoping it would hold. I didn't see a lot of you checking the construction. You just sat down because you trusted that this thing would hold you if you sat down. Because you can see it. You, you understand it. You can feel it. So many times we, we have that faith in what we can see and what we can't see is a little bit shakier. The Israelites did this over and over again when they came out of Egypt. The minute Moses goes up the mountain, he's barely gone at all. And they begin to get nervous. You see, it's already, 
It's already been tough following a God they couldn't see. I mean, sure, they could see him. They could see the uh, pillar of fire. They could see the cloud of smoke. But, but they're getting a little nervous that they can't see God and they can't see Moses. So what do they do? They start to forge an idol like the one they had in Egypt. It may not be the same Yahweh that provided for us, that split the seas, that caused water to come from a rock, but at least we can see it. And if we can see it, we can trust it. It's a calf made from your melted jewelry. What's it supposed to do for you? The book of Psalms says, your idols, they can't talk, they can't see, they can't feel, they can't smell. It says those that worship them will become like them. But those idols have a benefit. You can see them. And so somehow being able to see it made them be able to trust it more. Whenever the, in the book of Judges, you see this roller coaster spirituality where whenever there was a judge over the people, they did great. There were signs and wonders that they could see. There was a guy telling them what to do. They seemed to follow God just fine. As soon as that guy died, they fall off the wagon. And they start adopting all these idols of the people around them. They start adopting the Asherah poles. They start adopting these, these statues of Baal. And, and, and you get to the point, we talked about this in men's group last week, where, where Gideon is found in a wine press, terrified, cowering, worried that the Midianites are going to come attack him. He's, 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 he's dealing with his grain in a, in a cave that was made for wine pressing. And when the angel of the Lord greets him, he says, hey, valiant warrior, the Lord's with you. And Gideon says, you must have the wrong guy. And the first mission God gives him is to go and tear down his, his, his family's uh, altar, of, altar to Baal and his family's Asherah pole. And he's freaked out. Because even though these are people that say they follow Yahweh, they follow the living God, he knows if he tears it down, he's going to have a lot of people mad at him. And the reason is they trust in it because they can see it. For us, the kingdom of God is meant to be so much more real than all the kingdoms you can see, all the kingdoms you pay taxes to, all the kingdoms that you watch on the news, the kingdom of God is more real than any of those. It's the only thing that will stand. It's the only thing that will remain. So we got to decide, is that real to me? Because we talk about kingdom come. It's, it's, a, great, it's a great subject for songs. It's nice to talk about at funerals. That someday we'll meet on that beautiful shore. And thank God, I eagerly await that day. But the kingdom of God doesn't start when you die. Kingdom of God is going gonna, is gonna to be even more dominant when Jesus returns because the Bible says that when he comes and he rules the earth, there'll be a new earth and a new heaven. And when he comes and rule the earth, he'll rule with a rod of iron. The lion will lay down with the lamb. The child will stick its hand in the adder's nest and not fear. That's going to be a wonderful day. But it also talks about the kingdom here right now. And when the disciples went from village to village, healing the sick, casting out demons, preaching the gospel, Jesus told them, tell them the kingdom of God has come near to them. The kingdom of God came to their village. That's how real it was. You couldn't see it, but you sure saw its effects. You saw its effects. The kingdom of God must be so real to us that the world sees the effect of the kingdom that they see it, that they know it. They may not all be convinced by it, but they'll know it. One of my jobs, whenever we get up to preach, 
is yes, to teach the word, is to preach the word in season and out. But I think another part of it is to encourage you, encourage you in the faith that when you come in this building, sometimes it feels like detox where you've been in the world. You've been surrounded by the commercials of the world. You've been surrounded by the language of the world. You've been surrounded by all these things, and God did send you into the world. Jesus said, God, Father, I don't ask that you remove them from the world, but that you keep them from the evil one. So I don't want you to start your own little, your little, little town far off and say, I don't want the world coming near me. We go into the world as his ambassadors, but it is nice when we get back together and we get in the presence of God, which you can get in the presence of God wherever you want to be. But it is nice when we get together and we detach from the world's thinking and the world's way of doing things and we realize that we're part of something much bigger than what we see. In Romans chapter 12, we read about how, how that kingdom expands on the inside of us. Romans 11 had talked about the great mercy of God shown to both Jew and Gentile. And in Romans 12, it starts out with a bang. It says, therefore, in light of the mercy of God, in reaction to the mercy of God, present your bodies as a living sacrifice to him, which is your acceptable form of worship, acceptable service of worship. I love that phrase. He says here in the New American Standard, it says, I urge you, brethren, by the mercies of God. But the point there is, is that we're reacting to something. He's just told us about the overwhelmingly great mercy of God. You guys know that it was huge, right? Still is huge. The mercy of God, we can't even describe. It's just so big. The mercy he showed to us. That's real easy to react to people. It's real easy to react to circumstances. It's real easy to react to everything around us when in reality, we gotta be reacting to something bigger than that. We should live in reaction to the mercy of God. Live in reaction to him. Live in reaction to his love. Instead of reacting to the people around you and recycling all the junk that they send your way, we've got to live out of that spring of life that's on the inside of you. So Romans 12 goes through this and he talks about what it looks like to worship God with your life. Last week we talked about the reality that, that worship is not a bunch of songs you sing. Worship is not a time, it's... You know, we've, we've sometimes defined it not just as songs, but, but half of the songs, the slow ones. We've said that's worship. Indeed, that is worship. But that's not all worship is. It's a very small part of worship. It's going to be a part of worship. I know it's an important part because it, it's, they do it in heaven. And I figure if they do it in heaven, it must be pretty important. But he also talks about how do I worship God when I go to work? Right? I mean, does that mean I need to take my little boombox? Do we, they still make boomboxes? I guess not. But I, does it mean I need to take my, my iPod and plug it into a speaker? Every time I feel like worshiping God, I, I'll just, doesn't matter what I'm doing, I'll stop working, I'll plug this in, and I'll just, I'll just lift up my hands. Well, you know, that's, that's wonderful, but you can worship God in how you work. You can worship God in how you interact with the people God puts in your path. You can worship God with the words of your mouth, with the attitude of your heart. You worship God in everything you do. By the time we get to Romans chapter 13, we've come face to face with another reality of the kingdom of God. You're reminded when Jesus went about preaching the kingdom. One of the guys he had as part of his disciples was a man named Simon, who the Bible says his nickname was Simon the Zealot. 
Now that either means he was a real passionate, excited guy, or he was part of a group of troublemakers called the Zealots, which is likely. There was a group called the Zealots in, that, in those times that sought to overthrow the Romans. So you can imagine a man like Simon following Jesus around. Now there was Simon Peter. He's a different Simon. Both of these Simons were a bit of troublemakers at times. But this Simon was, was part of a group that couldn't wait for the Romans to get kicked out of Judea, kicked out of, kicked out of their homeland. When he joins Jesus, I imagine that this guy thinks, here's it, this is it. The Messiah's come. He's going to knock the Romans out. We finally see the kingdom set up. It didn't happen that way. Even in the garden, the other Simon, Simon Peter, got out his sword. And when the, the, uh, the high priest guards have come to pick up Jesus and to arrest him, Simon, thinks, Simon Peter thinks this is the moment. This is the moment. Somehow, me, the brutish fisherman, is going to be empowered from on high like the mighty men of old, and I'm going to take them all out with my little sword. And he aims for the seam of the helmet to split the helmet down the middle like he learned, I don't know where he learned it. He didn't have uh, movies or anything, but he somehow, that was a move that he knew. But he missed and his first great action of the revolution was to cut a servant boy's ear off. Way to go, Peter. That'll teach him. And Jesus' response to that is to pick up the guy's ear, stick it back on his head like he's a Mr. Potato Head or something. Just sticks it back on his head. And what do you know? It works. And he says, Peter, that's lay down your sword, Peter. I'm sure Peter was thinking, you're the guy that told us to bring swords. Why did you tell me to bring a sword? I've never figured that verse out. I've never figured out why Jesus said, you know, they say, are these enough swords? He goes, yeah, two is enough. Why did you tell them to bring swords if when they use them, you get on to them for using them? But that's the way it went down. So when Jesus is crucified, the disciples are disillusioned and they scatter. Then they huddle back together and they lock themselves in these homes it says the doors were locked for fear of the Jews when Jesus appeared to them. They were disillusioned. And then Jesus comes back from the grave and they go, finally, this is the moment. Return of the king. This is it. And then he gathers them together after 40 days and he says, I want you to stay in Jerusalem. I want you to wait for me. And they say, hey, hands up here. Uh, uh, is this when you're going to restore the kingdom? And he says, it's not for you to know the times of that, that day. They're restoring the kingdom to Israel. But, and it's in the same thought, you shall receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you. So in other words, you're looking for a kingdom you can see. And that'll come. But you don't know when that's coming. What I'm proclaiming to you today is there's a kingdom that I've already started and you'll be empowered when the Holy Spirit comes upon you and you'll be my witnesses here in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, to the ends of the earth. So the beginning of the church age is, a is, is, is an expanding of the kingdom. We find out that there are plenty of times that they thought the kingdom would be an earthly thing, that they'd kick the, the bad Romans out. They'd kick everybody else out that was causing problems. But you find out that's not what Jesus told them to do. In Romans 13, 
The last thing we read in Romans 12 was do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. In Romans 13, it says every person is to be in subjection to the governing authorities. And here, in this phrase, he's not talking about church authority. He's talking about government. Can anybody tell me who the government is at this time? Who's the head of the government right when he's writing this letter in about 55, 56 AD? Does anybody know who that shining young example of good government was? A guy named Nero. If you know anything about Nero, he was a real jerk. Just to put it lightly, a real jerk. Now, I know that sounds like I'm really giving him almost jerk is too nice for him. He, he, this is the guy that threw Christians to the lions in the Circus Maximus. This is the guy that held parties and used Christians lit on fire as lamps for his parties. It's not the church that told that story. It was secular historians at the time that wrote it down. He's a nut job. And Paul has the gall to write, every person must be subject to governing authorities. For there is no authority except from God. And those which exist are established by God. Doesn't mean that God put Nero in power, but God put the, the authority. God, God set up a system of authority. So it wasn't that God installed Nero. It wasn't that God said, uh, you know, the Romans are my guys. It was that authority comes from God to start with. The whole idea of there being authority is from God. And the reason for it is that the world is not perfect. The world's under a curse. So the reason we need government is because people mess stuff up. Here's what he says. Therefore, in verse 2, whoever resists authority has opposed the ordinance of God. And they who have opposed will receive condemnation upon themselves. He's writing to a group of people that are under a very bad government. But he says, don't just oppose government for the sake of opposing government. He says government is from God. Even the bad ones are still government. He says in verse 3, For rulers are not a cause of fear for good behavior, but for evil. Do you want to have no fear of authority? Do what's good, and you will have praise from the same. For it is a minister of God to you for good. But if you do what is evil, be afraid. For it does not bear the sword for nothing. For it is a minister of God, an avenger who brings wrath on the one who practices evil. Therefore, it's necessary to be in subjection, not only because of wrath, but also for consciousness' sake. So here's what he's saying. He's saying there's a reason we have police. There's a reason we have a government. It's because there's bad people. And the government is meant to stop the bad people from doing bad things and to praise the good people for doing good things. Now, how do you react to that when there's a guy like Hitler in power? Well, we can find in the Scripture that there were times where obeying government would not mean you had to disobey God. We just read last Wednesday night in the book of Acts where the government of the time told Peter and John, don't you dare preach in the name of Jesus. And they said, whether it's right for us to listen to you or to listen to God, you be the judge. But we can't stop talking about what we've seen and heard. Yeah. You see, there was a moment in their life where they, they submitted to, to the rule and authority as much as they could. But when it came to a point where they had to choose between God and listening to this guy, they said, we can't displease God. Later in Acts chapter 5, there's a wonderful story about how all the leaders get rounded up. The leaders of the church get rounded up and thrown into prison. 
The angel, an angel of the Lord comes in the middle of the night and lets them out of prison. And when they get out, the angel says, go right back where they caught you. I mean, come on, angel, why don't you just let us, you know, go somewhere safer? Why don't you go let us, you know, hide out for a little bit? Just tell tempers cool down. Angel of the Lord says, go back, right back where you got caught. Go to the temple and start proclaiming this message of life. So the high priests come in the morning and they find that these guys aren't there. They're kind of ticked about it. And they, they come and they find them preaching again. They're just really annoyed by it. They arrest them all over again. I don't know how many times we got to arrest these guys. They arrest them again. They said, we warned you. They don't even address the fact that somehow these guys all miraculously got out of prison. They say, we warned you not to preach in the name of Jesus anymore. And the disciples said, we've got to obey God rather than man. I'm sorry, but that was a command I could not keep. So we're stuck in between kingdoms, friends, where <laughs> there are times where you've got to obey God rather than obey man. There's other time, uh, that's all the time, but there are other times where you obey a government for the sake of Christ. Now, that's something that's hard to understand. But Jesus says, I, I mean, he's the king. He's the king of kings and the Lord of lords. Yet he says, do this for me. Now, there'll be a day I'm coming back, guys. He says, I'm coming back. It's going to be awesome. I'm coming back and I'm taking my place. I'm taking my kingdom. But until I return, for my sake, you keep the peace. For my sake, you listen to the government as long as you can do that and not disobey me at the same time. So I'm sure there's Germans. If you've ever read a biography of a guy like Dietrich Bonhoeffer, you understand that there are times, like when the Nazis took over, that the Christians had to take their stand and say, we cannot in good conscience obey this government. But there are other times where you just don't want to obey the government just because you don't like the government. We're very picky in Canada. There's really not a party we like. There's just one we hate a little less than the other ones. <laughs> and we love to talk about it. It's what keeps Tim Hortons going. Is the fact that we can get together over coffee and gripe about the government, even if we voted for them. It's a national pastime. It's almost as big as hockey. And yet, I got to ask myself, if, if the Apostle Paul wrote this during the reign of Nero and told them to submit to this authority, as bad as we might think the government is, it's not that bad. And there's an attitude where we say, I submit to the, this rule, I submit to the authority. Hey, if a police officer pulls you over for a stupid reason... You submit to that police officer in the fear of Christ because you say, you know what? I honor Jesus by honoring this guy. Now, that may not always be fun. Now, I thank God for the police in this city. I think they're doing a wonderful job. We pray for them. But we all know there's been times, maybe elsewhere in the country, where you got pulled over and you thought they were wrong to do it. I remember one time I was on a plane. And uh, you know... the. On the airplanes, they got some fun rules, don't they? You know, the whole turn, your, turn all your electronics off because you'll bring the plane down and you think, oh, all Al-Qaeda needed was an iPod. You know, they could just bring the thing down. <laughs> I was on a flight from 
Edmonton to, to Toronto when we were with the Cognuses and we were about to go to Greece. And, um, no, actually, I'm sorry. It was Toronto back to Edmonton. And I had my iPod plugged in. They had a little USB port in the, the back of the seat in front of me. And I had it turned off, turned off, but plugged in with a cord about this long, about a foot long, a USB cord. Now, if you've ever tripped over a USB cord, you know they come right out. There's no, you know, they, they don't hang on for dear life. They, they come right out. And I had it plugged in, turned off, and slipped into the seat pocket in front of me. And a stewardess comes along. Not flown a lot in my life, and I've realized that you just obey what they tell you to do. It's your plane. You can tell me to do all sorts of stuff. I'll do it. But please, if you tell me to do something silly, don't try to explain it. Just tell me to do it. I'll do it gladly. She says, sir, you need to unplug that iPod. So I did. I, I didn't ask any questions. I didn't fight. I didn't say, that's not fair. You know, I paid all this money for a ticket. I get to do what I want. I just did it. I just obeyed. I submitted to authority. But somehow she felt like she had to come back because even she realized this was a silly thing to say. His iPod's turned off. It's just plugged in so it can charge. Seems kind of silly that I told him to unplug it. So she comes back and she says, it's just that if the plane went down or we had some problems, we wouldn't want you to get tangled up in the cord. <laughs> and I'm thinking it's a cord like this long and it's a USB cord. How frail do you think I am? That if the plane is on fire, I'll say, go on without me. I'm tangled in the cord. <laughs> Goodbye, sweet world. And I was tested at that moment because I was submitting to authority while authority wasn't being stupid. But I felt like, and I'm sorry, there, I shouldn't throw the word stupid around so casually. But it just seemed silly to me. And I, I had to make up my mind because the guy next to me was drunk, but he at least found the comedy in the whole situation. <laughs> and he felt like finally we had something to talk about. <laughs> and I had a choice. Do I step into the flesh and just rip this thing apart? Or do I realize that I serve a greater king? I serve a greater king. There's a greater mission here. And maybe my, the way I handle this situation could be a message to this lady about the king I serve. Yeah, yeah. And realizing that it's not about me and getting my way. But from the, life my, from the time my life was purchased, it wasn't my own. For the great mercy that he showed me, I don't have the rights that I had before he showed me that great mercy. I gave up my rights and I was glad to give them up for his glory and for his love and for his mercy. It was so great. And though, though I could never repay the debt I owe, I do feel like I owe my life. I know I owe my life. I know my life is not worth what he paid for. I, he said, it's worth what he says it's worth, thank God. But I know I could never repay what he did for me. And yet because he died for me, he gets everything. And if the king says to forgive, it doesn't matter how much they did to me to hurt me. If the king says forgive, he forgave me for so much more. So I say I forgive. If the king says submit, even if they're wrong, submit to them and, and do it like you're doing it for me, then I'll do it. If he says go to work and your boss will tell you to do stuff that's way below you and way beneath you, but when you go to work, 
Serve that boss as if you're working for me. Then when that boss isn't looking, I work that much harder because I say I'm working for my king and he'll reward me. And even if he didn't reward me, I owe him everything. There's a new reality here as believers. I commented earlier that, you know, where this new room is took the place of some flags. I've got no problem with flags. They're, they're nice. They're wonderful. There's some churches that have made great use of flags because they have maybe, say, uh, many nations in their church, and they put up flags to signify that, that from every tribe and every tongue they've been brought together. And I love that. That's wonderful. Or they have flags to remind them to pray for those nations. It's wonderful. But I guess the one issue I might have is that when I realize, and especially when I step here with my brothers and sisters, my allegiance is first to him. I'm a citizen of heaven. I'm a missionary to Canada. And I may have been born in Meadow Lake, Saskatchewan. You may have been, praise God, right? (laughs) Meadow Lake doesn't get a lot of whoops, so... Tony might have been born in Nova Scotia. Woo! I'd say, I'd say most, uh, many of us here might say, you know, born and raised in Canada, I feel pretty Canadian. Boy, I felt real Canadian about a month ago when they won that gold medal in hockey, when they won double gold medals. Boy, did you feel patriotic. And yet, there's really, it's, it's it, as, as much as, that was a good thing, I enjoyed that. But in reality... I'm a citizen of heaven, and I'm a missionary to Canada. You're an ambassador of Christ to this nation. No matter what nation you came from, you're here now, and you belong to him. And as such, we submit to the king. And if the king says, until I return, submit to this authority, then you do it for him. Even if that authority is stupid. Even if they do things that you disagree with, you submit to authority. Now, we're in a democracy. You make your voice heard. If you disagree, you vote differently, and that's good. But there's something to be said about living our life in reaction to the mercy of God. In light of his mercy... To submit to this authority is not a big thing. I realize that submitting to authority is not the most exciting topic we could talk about on a Sunday. I understand that it's not, uh, it's not one of those books that you pick up in the Christian bookstore and go, ooh, goody, uh, a book about submitting to government. Yes, I mean, I've been looking for this. This is going to be great beach reading. <laughs> but boy, it's, in, it's smack in the middle of some deep truth here in Romans. And I've got to believe it's important. And if they could submit in such an evil government, now there were times where they had to object. There were times where they said, we have to obey God rather than man. But in all other things, even when the government was against them, they submitted to the king, the true king, by submitting to this authority. Let me read the rest. Verse 6 says, for because of this, you also pay taxes. For rulers are servants of God, devoting them to this very thing. Oh boy, it just got more exciting, didn't it? We're all of a sudden talking about taxes. <laughs> Render to them all what is due them. Now this reminds us of what Jesus said, right? Tax to whom taxes due, custom to whom custom, fear to whom fear, honor to whom honor. Owe no, nothing to anyone except to love one another. For he who loves, loves his neighbor has fulfilled the law. I want you to skip over to 1 Peter 2 for a moment. 
First Peter was also written in this same era, in the days of Nero. Both Peter and Paul would be executed by this emperor. Not just a slap on the wrist, executed. Paul got his head chopped off. Peter was crucified. So when they write these letters and they tell you to honor the king, it carries some weight because they didn't say that about a good king. They said it about a bad one, which I think tells us a lot more about it than, than if, if the king was all, all, you know, real nice guy, real wonderful guy. First Peter chapter 2, the beginning of this chapter is so beautiful. It talks about the stone that the builders rejected becoming the chief cornerstone. It talks about us being living stones, making a house that God dwells in. In verse 9 it says, but you are a chosen race. You are a royal priesthood. So whatever ethnicity you came from, whatever country you came from, you've been brought to a new race. Now you're a chosen race. There's a whole new ethnicity here, which is the people of God. You're a chosen race. You're a royal priesthood. You are a holy nation. No matter what nation you came from, we came into a kingdom. Now we're part of a new nation. A people for God's own possession. Now why? So that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who has called you out of darkness. And thank God he didn't just call me out of darkness. He called me in to his marvelous light. He didn't, call, he didn't just rescue you from the domain of darkness. The Bible says he rescued you from the domain of darkness and transferred you into the kingdom of his son. Now it says here, for you were once not a people. When we say a people, we're talking about a, 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 a tribe, a nationality, an ethnicity, a group of people, a nation. You were once not a people. You were a gathered, scattered group, a ragtag group from, from a bunch of different tribes. You were once not a people. Oh, I love what it says here. But now you are the people of God. <laughs> Do you ever look around and realize how crazily diverse the body of Christ is. Don't you love how our city has changed in the past 20 years, 30 years? How, how vastly different the city is from when I first moved here in 1989. How God has brought people from every nation almost to this city. And realizing that in the body of Christ, every tribe, every tongue, has become one in him. And understanding that no matter what nation we came from, we once were not a people, but now we are the people of God. You now belong to a family. You now belong to a nation. And it says this, you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. In Romans 11, we heard about the mercy of God. Romans 12 says, Worship God in light of that mercy. Here's how you do, react. What we just read about submitting to government as unto the Lord is still in that thought that we're still reacting to his mercy. Because of his mercy, this is how we live. He says, you receive mercy now. You had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. Beloved, I urge you as aliens and strangers. 
Anybody here feel like an alien? Maybe we ought to redefine what alien means. He's not talking about, you know, like Martians or anything. He's not talking about outer space. He's talking about people that, that come from another place. You don't belong here. This word aliens means that you came from another country and you've settled here. Immigrants, basically. Now, you might have been born and raised in the prairies, but you're an immigrant here. When you became born again, this is not your hometown. Your citizenship is in heaven. Your hometown is the new Jerusalem. Now, I live here as a missionary to this nation, but my home is in heaven. That may sound weird to your friends. You start pulling this stuff out at work, and they may look at you funny. They probably will. That's okay. I urge you as aliens and strangers. I bet they felt like aliens and strangers. You know, when Peter writes this, he refers to the city that he writes it in as Babylon. Now, at that time, Babylon itself had been destroyed. But he was talking about Rome. Peter wrote this letter from Rome, a city that had such great evil in it, a city where Christians were so persecuted, a city where that city had been set on fire. We don't know how it happened. It started in the slums, and it spread throughout the city, even to to the seven hills where the palaces were. And interestingly enough, the one part of the city that was largely untouched by the flames was where the Jews and the Christians lived. Nero realizes that all over the city, people are blaming him for the fire. The Romans were the first ones to really perfect graffiti. You might think it was just a, you know, a thing that started in the last century, but the Romans were good at graffiti. The Roman people, when they couldn't rightly say what they felt outright, but when they were mad at the emperor, they'd, they'd scrawl it on a wall or something, and the emperor would wake up to find out that people are blaming him for the fire. They figured it was his way of clearing out the slums. He said, we got to find somebody to blame this on. Well, he realized he couldn't blame it on the Jews because they were too big of a population. So they blame it on the Christians. And in doing so, He made the whole city angry at the Christians. And not only were they being persecuted, but people felt like they were justified in persecuting them because these are criminals who set our city on fire. They're arsonists. The rumors were going around, guys. The rumors about the Christians were crazy. Did you know most of the time when Christians were put on trial, during this period they were put on trial as arsonists, atheists? Aren't those crazy things? Rumors were going around that because they partook of the Lord's table and ate the body of Christ, that they were cannibals. Rumors were going around because they heard about this love that between brothers and sisters, that these guys were committing incest. Terrible rumors. You know, we always imagine that if we were ever to be persecuted, that somehow we'd walk to the flame with a halo over our head. And everybody says, truly, they're wonderful people. Why must you kill those blessed souls? But the truth is, in every time in history, when those those Christians were persecuted and martyred, people were convinced they were the bad guys. Do you think it's any different today? Are we surprised that as a believer whose mission is love, 
whose heart is for God and for the people, that you'd be branded as hateful, a bigot, intolerant? But that's ever been the plan of the enemy. Don't think it's anything new. This has always been the plan. So this is what happened to them. But he says, you're aliens, you're strangers, you don't belong here. You're here for a reason, but this isn't your home. As aliens and strangers, I urge you to abstain from fleshly lusts, which wage war against the soul. Then he says, keep your behavior excellent amongst the Gentiles. By Gentiles, he means those that are without God. So that in the thing in which they slander you as evildoers, do you hear that? They'll call you an evildoer. They will slander you. But if you live a life pure before the Lord, if you keep your behavior excellent, it says, they may because of your good deeds as they observe them, glorify God in the day of visitation. They may slander you and say things that aren't true, but don't give them anything actual to go on. You live your life before God. You submit to those authorities. You live with integrity. You, you act with character. You work as, as unto the Lord. And even when they slander you, they'll have nothing real to go on. And they'll begin to see who you really are. And they'll glorify God when they're visited. But then it says this, submit yourself for the Lord's sake. Do you hear that? Submit yourself for who? For the Lord's sake. He doesn't say submit yourself for, for the government's sake. He doesn't say submit yourself for my sake. He says for the Lord's sake, you submit yourself to every human institution, whether to a king as the one in authority or to governors as sent by him for the punishment of evildoers and the praise of those who do right. Does this sound familiar to you? Sounds a lot like what we just read in Romans. It's the same message. In a turbulent time, Guys, the Christians had gotten to a point where they might have said, they might have said, if God was able to take 300 men with Gideon and, and destroy the army of the Midianites, if God was able to send one angel and wipe out the Assyrian army, who was the big army at the time, if God was able to deliver the Israelites from the hands of the Egyptians, let's rise up and overthrow the government. But Paul and Peter both write to the church for Christ and his sake. Submit as unto your king. Because ultimately, we serve our king. And as unto the king, you submit to that king. And he says this. Governments, governors are sent by him for the punishment of evildoers and praise of those who do right. For such is the will of God that by doing right you may silence the ignorance of foolish men. Act as free men and do not use your freedom as a covering for evil, but use it as bond slaves of God. Now verse 17 is worth its weight in gold. Much more. Honor all people. Love the brotherhood. Fear God. Honor the king. But of course, that word king, when Peter wrote it, would not be understood as a king, but rather when they read it, they would have applied it to the emperor. It's the word basilius in Greek. The ruler of the time, the king. Their king, their ruler, their emperor was Nero. Do you see how crazy that must have been to get this letter? 
But look at it in context. Honor all people. Why? Most of the people are morons. Why do I have to honor them? He said, because they bear the image of God. Because they've been created by God. Honor people. Love the brotherhood. Because Jesus said, this is how they'll know you're mine. Your love for one another. Honor everybody. But there's a special love for the people of God. Love the brotherhood. Fear God. The sphere is talking about the, that reverence for God, that putting him first, that honor for him. And it says, honor the king. Why? Because I fear God. Because if God tells me, if my true king tells me, I'll honor this guy. Even that bulbous, neck beard wearing, chubby, sadistic emperor Nero. I know the neck beard isn't really a point that you care about. I'm just saying it wasn't a pretty guy to look at. That's all I'm saying. <laughs> oh, you look at a picture of this guy. Never mind, I'm not going to go off on that. Never mind, it's not important. Stay on track. Servants, be submissive to your masters with all respect. Listen to this. Not only to those who are good and gentle, but also to those who are unreasonable. Isn't that crazy? <laughs> for this finds favor for the sake of conscience toward God. Do you hear that? For the sake of conscience toward God. A person bears up under sorrows when suffering unjustly. For what credit is there if when you sin and are harshly treated, you endure it with patience? But if when you do what is right and you suffer for it, you patiently endure it, this finds favor with God, for you've been called to this purpose since Christ suffered for you, leaving an example for you to follow in his steps, who committed no sin, nor was any deceit found in his mouth. And while being reviled, he did not revile in return. While suffering, he offered no, uttered no threats, but kept entrusting himself to him who judges righteously. That's the point that Jesus said, I entrust myself to the real judge. That's why I'm able to honor and subject myself to a government that's not perfect because I trust the king of kings. I honor the Basilius, that ruler, that king, because I'm honoring the king of kings. I'm sure my Greek is really bad here, but I'm honoring the Basilion ton Basilius, the king of kings. What in the world does this have to do with 2014? I really am glad that we're reading these two letters that were written in turbulent times with really bad rulers because it doesn't give us any outs. If this was written in a time where the king was a wonderful guy, we could say, well, they didn't have a government like we have. But now we get to compare our government to that government. We say ours isn't that bad. Now, I'm not, talking about, I'm not talking about which party you voted for right now. I'm just talking about government in general. You might complain it's tax season. You might be complaining. You might be happy. But either way, we pay our taxes as under the Lord. Have you ever considered it's your taxes? You're doing it as under the Lord? That you really say, the Lord told me to pay taxes, so I'm, I'm doing this as an act of worship to him? You ever considered that when you vote, you're exercising your tiny bit of kingship, your tiny bit of authority in the government that you have as unto the Lord. 
that every time your boss does something that you don't agree with and you submit to him as unto the Lord and you say, you don't deserve my honor, but I honor you because I honor the king, that you're worshiping God. Have you ever considered that when that police officer pulls you over and you didn't do what he said you did, you might, if you need to take it to court, you take it to court. I'm not saying you're unjust. But do you treat that man with respect, that woman with respect, because you honor the king, because you honor Jesus? Do you ever consider that when it comes down to it and nation rises against nation, that we're the ones that say, Our first allegiance is to him. There'll be a time, I'm sure, you know, I tend to believe there there is a just cause for war and there's unjust cause for war. I don't believe it's black or white. I believe there are times, World War II being a great example, we're pretty glad that our folks went to fight that war, aren't we? There's going to be times where there's a just cause. There's going to be times where it's unjust. We need to first realize our allegiance is to him. And we need to hold up our government in prayer. We need to hold up our rulers in prayer. We need to hold up our city officials, our police officers. We need to hold them up in prayer and support them, not only with our prayer, but with our action. Like I said, this is not the kind of thing. (laughs) This isn't one of those, you guys are going to be running around the church by the time I'm done with this. I got it in my hands. I got it in my feet, you know. (laughs) Might not be one of those. But it's so relevant today. Because I'm telling you, if we're going to preach the kingdom of God, we must first realize we don't belong here. We don't fit in. You are bombarded every day with the messages of the world, the commercials that you see every day that tell you you can't possibly be happy until you have what we're selling you. You're bombarded We let things into our home because they're entertaining. We'd never let a woman in our home and strip in front of our family. And yet, many people will let something in that's about the same thing because they're entertained by the story. We never let somebody in our home and swear in front of our kids, and yet we rent a movie because it's funny. We've got to realize this world is not our home. This culture is a lost culture. And yet God puts you here as salt and light in the culture. And he did not call you to forsake the culture, but to reach it with the gospel of Jesus Christ. To preach the kingdom, to demonstrate the kingdom, to walk out the kingdom, to serve the king. And as we serve the king and we honor the emperor, we still resist the effects of the world on us because we understand we're aliens and we're strangers. And that reality has never become more clear than every day as our culture walks further and further down the road they're on, we understand we don't belong. And yet Jesus said, I don't ask that you take them away from the world, but that you keep them from the evil one. Do you trust God? Do you trust your real king? Do you trust him that he knows what he's doing? And he put you here for a reason? That you're here to be an ambassador for Jesus Christ. You're here as his hands, his feet, his voice in Canada. As Peter stood up in front of Jerusalem, 
And through many exhortations, he said, and he urged them, be saved from this wicked and perverse generation. Do you understand that we've been set here as a light? God has hope for Canada. It's not gone. It's not dead. It's not down the drain. There's much hope. There's water still bubbling in the well. There's a light that's still burns, there's coals that have yet to be awakened, and when those founding fathers said over this nation that he will have dominion from sea to sea, from the river to the ends of the earth, when you go to the parliament buildings and you see the words of God inscribed on the stone, that even no matter who gets in power, they haven't been able to remove those words, and every hour on the hour, the bell tolls, and inscribed on the bell is glory to God in the highest and peace on earth and goodwill to men. You understand there's been seeds planted in this nation that have yet to be harvested. As Jesus said to his disciples, we're walking in a field we haven't planted. We're harvesting seeds we have not sown. We're entering into another man's labor. It's time for us to get over ourselves. Can I say that? Get over yourself. Get over your agenda. Realize this isn't about you and your rights. Now, Jesus loves you. He cherishes you. He's numbered the hairs on your head. He, the Bible says, I know it sounds cliche. I know it sounds like something to be inscribed on a teddy bear you got from verses, but it says that he counts your tears and he collects them in a bottle. Did you know that wasn't just written for a, a greeting card? Scripture actually says that. He's collected your tears. He's numbered the hairs on your head. You are wonderfully valuable to him. You're worth something, and yet you're part of something bigger. As much as we like to be individuals, we're part of something bigger. I urge you as aliens and strangers, abstain from the things that wage war against your soul. Submit to authority as to God and be a light that the world needs. Amen? Don't let them grind you down. Don't let them change you. But you change the world around you. Amen? Stand up with me. Thank you, Jesus. I know we went a little bit longer today. Maybe some of you got an hour less of sleep than you normally get. But like I said, if we're not willing to let the kingdom rule our lives, how can it expand around us if it can't first expand in us? If it can't be the only reality we see?